All new Dr. Phil today. Let's do it. There have been cadaver dogs that have been involved. Detective Jones, was there a hit? Cape Coral Police Department met here in this park with cadaver dogs. And on that evening, the cadaver dogs led them actually across the street here directly to our mother's apartment. Where is Lauren DeMolo? I'm Hillary Wadsworth. And I'm Caitlin Boddy. And you're listening to Complicit. This bonus episode is eye-opening. It's part education, part inside information into Lauren DeMolo's case. We're joined by Michael Hadsell, who owns Peace River Search and Rescue, an organization whose specialty is in search and cadaver dogs. If you find yourself in the unfortunate position of needing to track someone, Mike is the guy you call. And that's why his organization, Peace River, is who Detective Jones called in to assist with Lauren's case and whose dogs famously led investigators to Victor and Gabby's work van and to Victor and Anne's front door. We'll talk more about Lauren's case specifically in a bit, but before that, we want to give you a better understanding of cadaver dogs. Because contrary to what you might have seen on TV, they are a typically underutilized and often misunderstood tool in an investigation. Mike's been doing this for 42 years, and some of the cases he told us about completely blew us away. He's a true advocate and trailblazer, pioneering methods of search and rescue and increasing success rates far above industry standards along the way. I started working dogs in 1980 and I got into dog sports. I was doing a a sport that's called Schutzen, and that is a uh, German police dog sport, and it mimics law enforcement. We have a protection phase, a tracking phase, an obedience and agility phase. And basically, Schutzen was for testing breeding standards on German Shepherds. And then I was doing uh, tracking competitions with different tracking organizations like AKC, UKC. There was a competition-wise. And I've stated it ever since then. Mike found that not only did he love working with dogs, specifically in tracking sports, but he was really good at it. One thing he did notice, though, was how while the dogs performed well in these competitions, their skills didn't necessarily translate into real-life situations. He wanted to change that. Peace River, we started in 2005. We formed a loose team and got started at that time helping out. It was all live find stuff. And by live find, I mean the person is living. And tracking dogs, because of the poor training methods we used back then, their success rate in an urban environment was around 17%, which meant that you had an 83% chance of not getting found by a tracking dog if you were out there. And that was just a horrific rate because I competed in tracking. I did this stuff, worked with different sports. And we were doing really good, but for some reason, when we got into the law enforcement side of things, the tracking just kind of fell apart. (laughs) So I went to work on it, and Peace River really kind of started as my laboratory where I was working on different training methods. And I trained under all the best experts I could find who were, were good at dog training, animal theory, things like that and learned from the best and then I brought it all back and then I put it into what I call my laboratory where I started working through it trying to figure out what worked and what didn't 
and what didn't work we threw away and what did work we kept you know and that kind of formed our training method for peace river and we got better at it and then at some point around 2010 we incorporated and made it a non-profit 501c3 and then we added the cadaver dog program back in and we did the same thing with that that we did with the tracking dogs we just kind of took it apart and rebuilt the program and you know focused on the training methods and what was going on at the time versus what worked better and we we started producing some really really good cadaver dog teams Mike is truly one of the best in the business, so it's no surprise that his organization has been getting noticed. Just to brag a little on Mike's behalf here, over the span of his career, he's worked on cases you've probably heard of, like Jimmy Hoffa, D.B. Cooper, Maura Murray, and more recently, Dog the Bounty Hunter tapped Mike to help him search for Brian Laundrie. And now we're into being a leader in Cadaver Dog, and we certainly enjoy being able to help and produce good teams. And the reason I emphasize the word team is because a Cadaver Dog is not just the dog. There's a human that's paired with that dog, and that's the team that goes out. And most of the time we found the problems with the team wasn't the dog. It was the hairless ape on the other end of the leash was causing the problems. And so we really work hard on educating our handlers, making sure that the handlers are not interfering with the dog, cueing the dogs, creating any kind of problems. Mike went on to explain how the dogs are trained. So our program very much in the first phase starts off with training the dogs correctly, imprinting them correctly on the target odors that we want, and then proofing the dogs off of any concomitant cues, which are things that might distract the dogs and then proofing the dogs off the handlers so the handlers can't interfere with their job. <laughs> so, and that's kind of how we do it. And Peace River produces some phenomenal canine teams. For all you animal lovers out there, you'll appreciate that Mike has never used negative reinforcement training methods with his dogs. I never put a training collar, shock collar, or anything on my dogs. I was what was known as a free trainer. And I did it all through reward and behavior shaping. And I never used any force options at all on my dogs. And people thought I was nuts and that it was impossible. <laughs> so I ended up taking a dog that was a raw dog just to prove him wrong. And I got the dog through national certification in two weeks, which was unheard of. And that dog is still in service and that dog is still producing uh, good funds. Something we found interesting is that dogs are trained specifically to the geographical area where they will be working. Soil, water, vegetation, all these things influence a search and the dog's expertise to track within the environment. Peace River dogs specialize in Florida's unique conditions. And because of this extensive and specific training, Peace River has an impressive success rate. So our success rate for the tracking dogs runners right around 83 to 84% success rate and that means that when we deployed the dog had the target odor we found the victim and that's a very high tracking dog success rate and we're very proud of that fact mike's talking here specifically about tracking dogs tasked with finding people who are still alive that's the old sniff the sock and find the person that you might see on tv Tracking dogs are different from cadaver dogs, who are specifically trained to seek out smells of human remains. Success rates for cadaver dogs, which were utilized in Lauren's case, are a bit murkier to understand. 
For cadaver dogs, you never really know. And it's always hard for people to relate on how a cadaver dog is because we don't always know the final results. A lot of times we never hear from law enforcement, hey, we had a find, we didn't have a find. The dog alerted, they went back and dug it up, they found a body, but they didn't tell us. Or maybe, and then two years later, I get a subpoena at the door and they say, hey, state attorney needs you to come in and give deposition on this case where your dogs found something. And sometimes the dogs do find something. It's just not exactly what the investigators were hoping. We have what we call productive finds and we have non-productive finds. So a non-productive find is where the dog is alerted on something. We don't know what it is yet. And we just tag it and put it away in, in our report and we'll look at it later. And then we have the finds where they absolutely do find things. And that happens all the time. You know, my dog, Dama, that I had here, one of the first searches, we were up in North Florida searching for a young lady who had overdosed and they thought she was in the woods and they had a searching. And then Dama alerts on this depression and the dirt. And it's looked like a very old depression. It didn't look like anything fresh. And certainly the girl didn't kill herself and then bury herself at the same time. So we knew that that wasn't probably related to our case. However, nothing else was found out there. So the detectives went back and said, well, let's go back and find out what's going on. So they had the university come up and, and do the uh, dig. And the uh, forensic students came up and did the excavation. And then I got a phone call from the, from the professor at the university. He said, hey, Mike. And I said, yeah, what's going on? And, said, and she said, congratulations, your dog found a 150-year-old pioneer grave. So Mike would classify that as a productive find. It wasn't the body they were hoping to find. But at the same time, the dog did find human remains. And that goes to my point that I tell people that dealing with cadaver dogs is that they have to understand first and foremost, the world is a graveyard and we have bodies all over the place. We wanted to understand more about what the dogs smell and how they determine when to alert the handler or pass on by, because we know in Lauren's case there were alerts and that those alerts were called into question by investigators. It's about to get a little graphic, just to warn you. So the University of Tennessee, under a very brilliant man who happens to be a friend of mine, Dr. Arped Boss, did a uh, tremendous study on the gas. He had a piping system above and below some decomposing bodies as they were buried and every day they would take gas samples. And out of that, they came up with a catalog of about 470 volatile organic compounds that are being released from the body through five different stages of decomposition. And going through those five different stages, the uh, chemical mix changes a little bit from stage to stage and we go from a wet period with a lot of tissue and we come down to a dry period when there's just bones and teeth. During all those periods, all those are generating odor that the dog can find, but they're generating them in different forms because of the level of decomposition. In reality, when we come down to it, there's about 30 volatile organic compounds that are consistently coming off human remains and those are, we have a list of them, and those are the ones that we want to target when we're going out there. Now, the VOCs and the molecules that are coming off a human body are very waxy and they're sticky and they don't go away easily. If you smell 
a dead body and that odor gets in your nose, it could be in your nose for two or three days because you're trying to get it out of there. That's why a lot of guys wear a Vicks vapor rub under their nose and stuff like that, try to keep that from happening because those molecules get up in there and they, they hang around for a while. So that's how the dogs are trained on smells. But because of how sticky decomposing human cells are, it's not always a straight line from scent to remains. That being said, there is the problem of what we call residual and transfer problems with remains. And that being that that odor can stick to your clothes, stick to your hands, anything you touch, you can transfer the odor around, you can transfer it on your clothes. If it gets on your clothes, you go sit over in a car, the dog will start alerting on the car because the transfer odor is over there. And these are things that, you know, as an experienced handler, he would recognize and see that there could be something like this going on. But then again, if you're chasing a murderer and you're trying to figure out where he went after he killed the body, that's a great way to follow him around because the dogs are telling you everywhere he went after after he uh, disposed of the body. So understanding VOCs, understanding the molecules, understanding what's happening with the odor problem is a critical piece of evidence. This is where the handler and the investigators take over in determining if what the dogs find is relevant to the case they're investigating. The handler plays an amazing role in the formation of the cadaver dog team. The dog will perform its its trick. I say he's going to do his trick, he's going to find odor, and he's going to alert and say, hey, there's odor here. It's up to us now to figure out what's going on. We can mark it, they can luminol it, they can pull soils out if they want to and do soil sampling, which we do. and, and run it through a gas mass spectrometer and see if there's any human chemical markers there. That kind of stuff needs to be done at that point. Some departments do it, some don't, you know, but that's where the handler has to have the training and the experience to be able to understand what's going on. And unfortunately, in the world of the cadaver dog, a lot of the training that comes through the volunteer SAR organizations is not up to that level. And so a lot of people are fall into what we call urban legends and they start making remarks like anything from where, uh, like we heard on the Dr. Phil show where it's cat feces or something was caught triggering the dog. That's ridiculous, but nobody knows any better. So that's what gets flown out there, you know? This is a good place to transition specifically to Lauren's case. On December 7th, 2021, the Dr. Phil show dedicated a full hour-long TV episode to Lauren's case, inviting Lauren's father, Paul, and sister Cassie to be his onstage guests. He also brought on Danny, who you'll remember organizes much of the local community search efforts. Why would she go to the park? You said she meditated there. But Detective Jones video conferenced in, Trish, representing the Southwest Florida Crime Stoppers, did as well, and Victor, Lauren's stepdad, gave a written statement to be shown and read on air. Dr. Phil spent a good amount of time summarizing the case and delving deeper into Lauren's history, mental state, and her relationships. But then he transitioned to the investigation itself. And no surprise, the cadaver dog search was a big part of that. Mike referenced the cat brought up in Dr. Phil. This is because in Victor's written statement, just like when we interviewed him, he said that it was a result of his cat dying under his bed that he believed the cadaver dogs ended up on his doorstep. 
Mike emphatically denies that his dogs would have mistaken a cat for a human. Impossible. Would never trigger one of our cadaver dogs. Our dogs would totally ignore that. That has nothing to do with a human target odor. Human odor is completely different than animal odor. They're two completely different things. And uh, in fact, part of the certification process for cadaver dogs, when they go through it, we were using nap water and NNDDA at the time for our certs. And part of that certification process is that in one of the areas that the dogs are certifying in, there has to be a dead animal there, which there was, and the animal was there, and then our dogs have to ignore it and then just focus on the target odor, which all of our certified dogs do. And so that's just not possible. And they're more than willing to come up here and test my dogs if they want to. They bring all the dead cats they want, and, and my dogs will just ignore them. But that wasn't the only blunder on the Dr. Phil show that caught Mike's attention. When asked about the cadaver dog search and the alerts the dogs made on the van and in the apartment, Detective Jones dismissed the cadaver dogs pretty quickly, incorrectly stating that there are two types of cadaver dogs, those that search out human remains and those that search out human waste products, and that it's unclear what capabilities cadaver dogs actually have, essentially justifying the quick return of the van and the alleged lack of evidence collected from the apartment. And Dr. Phil accepted his answer. Mike was dumbfounded. I literally spit my coffee out when I saw it, and I couldn't believe what I heard. I thought, what the heck is this? You know, it, it just didn't make any sense. Completely off the mark. I don't know where they got that information. But the thing that irritates me about the whole situation is they never reached back to us and said, hey, guys, can we talk about this stuff? And we're the experts. We know this stuff. We're in it every day. And no one reached back to us and talked to us about it. Just to set the record straight, there are not two different kinds of cadaver dogs. There are just cadaver dogs. And yes, they can and do also pick up on human waste remains. But again, in their training, this is addressed and accounted for. There wouldn't be a septic tank that was safe on my street. You know, I mean, my dogs would be alerting all over the place because everybody here has septic tanks. I mean, so that would be, it would be ridiculous. It's just a terrible fallacy, and it's a shame. It's a shame that that's getting out there. This is kind of why I'm on this quest to try to straighten some of this out and see if we can get the terms in a more professional manner and get everybody on the same page when it comes to dealing with cadaver dogs. And, yes, Mike did set Detective Jones straight on the matter as well. I said he owed me a new uh, computer board because I just spit coffee all over the one that I had. The misinformation given on the Dr. Phil show aside, let's focus on what actually did happen in Lauren's case regarding the dogs and their search. I won't give out specifics because the case is still active and I'm not exactly sure where everything is with Cape Coral PD, but I will tell you what I can. The dogs did arrive. The dogs searched the park. They searched the woods next to the park and they did a water search out there. So the dogs were working that area. The one dog, Caliber, who was a phenomenal dog, she got into odor, ran across the street, went up to the apartment and started alerting at one of the apartments up there. And that triggered them to move over that way. Apparently that apartment belonged to 
Lauren's mother. And so the dogs were allowed to go in there. They alerted on some things in there. In Victor and Anne's apartment, the cadaver dogs alerted on a curtain in the living room that separated the washer-dryer area. The curtain and its rod were collected. Later on, Detective Jones told Paul and Cassie that it was methane gas on the curtain, and this methane gas was what caused the dogs to alert. We asked Mike about this, and according to him, methane is not one of the primary gases that the dogs smell. In fact, methane is colorless and odorless, so the dog wouldn't be able to smell it regardless. And he didn't want us to take his word for it. He referred us to a paper called Odor Mortis by Dr. Arpad Vass that spells out the top odors released from a decomposing human. And he's right, methane is not listed in the top 20 gases. Continuing with that day, the dogs then went from the apartment to Victor and Gabby's work van, as well as two trailers with work supplies. The trailers, we were told, had nothing to report, but the van was of interest and taken by police. And they came out, they had them check the van, and the dogs alerted on the van. The van was impounded. They took everything out. The dogs worked it. I won't release on what was found there, but they did. There was some stuff. The dogs did actually find more than what was originally revealed to Paul and Cassie, but we are not yet at liberty to say what those items are. And then the van was released back to the owners. That was it. Remember how Paul and Cassie were told the van was released back to Victor due to his line of work? To refresh your memory, Victor and Gabby work in flooring. Detective Jones relayed that feces, menstrual blood, and other human waste products are commonly found on carpets. So the van was released on a technicality. We asked Mike about this. Not because of feces. I don't know where this feces thing comes in. Human stools or even animal stools. Animal stools will not trigger a cadaver dog at all because they're different chemistry altogether and the dogs are not trained to target that odor, so they will not do it at all. You can come out here and test my dogs and bring five different types of poop you want to and put them out there and my dogs will bypass them all because they don't care. The only time a dog will alert on human feces or any feces of human nature is if the human being who secreted it is uh, in poor health. And usually that means they have a kidney failure going and they're bleeding in their stools or they've got a UTI. Sometimes UTIs, if they're urinating and they have a UTI, they're transmitting blood cells through their urine and that can trigger a cadaver dog as well. So those are things that can happen. Just to play devil's advocate, we followed up on this UTI scenario. Remember, a severe UTI was what initially landed Lauren's mother, Anne, in an incapacitated position in her bathroom. We wanted to know if, perhaps, the dogs had picked up on that specific type of infection brewing in Anne, even though her infection would not become more severe until three months later. That wouldn't be enough odor source to draw the dog all the way from what it did. Now, in order to draw a dog and for a caliber to be drawn from the park across the street to that apartment. That takes a really good scent source. I mean, that, so that's something more than just Anne having a uh, urinary tract infection. That's something more than that. The thing to remember with, with human remains is it's not just one target odor out of the human being. With our dogs, we don't train them on blood as a single source. We use human tissue. 
because that is what we call the cocktail or the sweet or the combination of volatile organic compounds that we want the dog to be consistent with. So for them to be running across the street, that package of human odor had to be there in order to trigger that dog to come back. And when you're talking about a dog like Caliber, she's she's phenomenal, been on a hundred missions or more, and she has a high accuracy and a very contextual dog. When she goes to work, she's in work mode, you know? So she's phenomenal. For that dog to pull across the street and do something like that is, is incredible. The dog picked up odor and took off. You can hear that Mike was just as astonished with what transpired as Lauren's family was when describing what happened. But overall, Mike's job is to put the pins in the areas of interest and let the investigators take it from there. I'm not the CSI tech on the thing. All I can do is say my dog's alerting on this, this, and this, and then they can luminol it, they can test it, they can do whatever they have to do to try to bring it up and find out if there's any human proteins on it and go from there. Now, the preponderance of that is kind of weird, you know. Lauren's missing, we have hits in that apartment, and then we have hits on the van. And the funny thing about that van, if I'm correct, is that that van was, when it was returned, was taken to the junkyard and shredded. And that's kind of weird. There's definitely something going on there, but what it is, that's up to law enforcement to figure it out. Mike and his team have remained involved in Lauren's case and now work hand-in-hand with the DeMolo family, even after being released by the Cape Coral Police Department. And while they continue to search, Mike is hush-hush about where. He's always been smart not to release the location of the search areas, and we won't do that here either. You don't want to telegraph too much information because the bad guys are going to be taking precautions to protect themselves. So you got to be careful with that information. And sadly, despite everyone's best efforts, the bad guys are still out there. Peace River Search and Rescue is a volunteer, nonprofit organization that relies on donations so that they can continue to help families in need. They have volunteers for search and rescue, as well as scientists, forensic experts, crime scene professors, anthropologists, even criminal labs that donate their time to help them with cold cases. But they rely on donations to fund the upkeep of equipment, travel, things like that. If you're interested in learning more about Peace River Search and Rescue or want to make a donation to help their efforts, visit www.prsar.org or our website, complicit-podcast.com for their link. We hope this bonus episode was a bit of an education and a different perspective into Lauren's case. As always, we will continue to update you as we learn more about what happened to Lauren DeMolo. Be sure to subscribe so that you can stay up to date on the story along with us. Thanks for listening to Complicit, a true mystery podcast about the disappearance of Lauren DeMolo. If you have any information about the disappearance of Lauren DeMolo, please call 1-800-780-TIPS. That's 1-800-780-8477. Or go to www.capecops.com tips. Or you can text a tip to crimes. That's 274637. Tips can be left anonymously. And there is a reward currently being offered for information leading to an arrest. 
Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and continued developments in Lauren's case. For additional information you won't hear and can't see on the podcast, visit our website at complicit-podcast.com. Also, be sure to follow us on social media on Facebook at Complicit Podcast, on Twitter at Complicit underscore pod, and on Instagram at Complicit underscore podcast. Complicit is a production of Seventh Guest Productions and produced by Resonate Recordings. And now, here's another podcast we like, and you may as well.